Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're talking about how not to defend a wage reconstruction case in New Jersey. So I've got a fun case to talk about, and uh, um, thanks for joining us today. It is July 26, 2021. Hope everybody's summer's been going wonderful. Uh, let's jump into some workers' comp. All right. So uh, here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hi, it's me, Greg Lois. Uh, thanks for jumping in. Uh, today, I'm going to do a brief commercial for a fundraiser the firm is doing for the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And then we're going to talk about wage reconstruction. We're going to talk about what is it? Does wage reconstruction apply in New Jersey workers' compensation cases? When it should apply and when you should be fighting it? Uh, we're going to talk about our general position, which is we should always be challenging reconstruction. And then for fun, I'm going to talk about a recent case that came out uh, in which reconstruction really should have been fought strenuously and was not. And I'm going to point out sort of the errors and the pitfalls so that this doesn't happen to you uh, when you're managing your workers' comp claims. Uh, there's also uh, a new decision that came out recently that I'm going to talk about, and there are two handouts today uh, in the presentation materials. The um, presentation materials today include a handout, which is the Calero versus Target case, uh, which is really going to be the subject of reconstruction. Uh, and then it's also going to talk about the uh, Ryder case, uh, where we're going to talk about what's new uh, on the reverse offset rule in New Jersey. So thanks for joining us today. Again, as always, this is completely and totally live. I'm going to be answering your questions live. So please feel free to type them in as we go in your uh, webinar control panel there. I can see questions as they come in and I will answer them at the end. All right, let's jump into a, just a quick commercial. We are uh, very proud this year to be supporting the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Uh, the Challenged Athlete Foundation uh, provides grants and equipment to disabled athletes and those grants are used generally for assistive uh, sport equipment as well as for grants for travel and for uh, event registration and event cost. Uh, this is a really great uh, charity and it really does go along with, I think, our employee focus that we have here. Uh, we know bringing disabled people back to the workplace, so often we are fighting psychosocial situations and uh, getting people involved back in their community, getting them involved back in sports. This is just a wonderful way to reintegrate people uh, back into the workplace and back into regular life. So the Challenge Athlete Foundation raises money and then supports uh, disabled athletes, and that's something that we stand behind strongly. So we are supporting it this year uh, by uh, holding a fundraiser on September 25th. It's going to be a 5K walk-run, which is sponsored by Lois Law Firm. We've got a number of other great co-sponsors, which I'm really excited about. They've donated everything from money to time to uh, volunteers and everything. We're going to have a great event on September 25. If you're around, please come and, and join us. Uh, if you can't come around, but you want to maybe uh, register for our fundraising team or make a small donation, uh, that's always welcomed. And we're also looking for any other additional co-sponsors. So if you are an organization like ours that's always looking for some way to support uh, people that are disabled and help them reintegrate back into their former life or uh, in regular life or sporting life or any of those things, if this is important to you, uh, this is a great way to do it. On your screen right now is uh, one of those uh, quick codes that you can scan with your phone. That will take you directly to our fundraising registration page. Uh, it is $25 to register for the event. All of those proceeds go to the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Uh, we've raised a couple thousand dollars so far, which we're excited about, and we're even more excited about the fact uh, that the firm is going to match all donations and money raised. Uh, so far, we've committed to 
uh, about $4,000 or $5,000 so far in matching donations. So we're really excited about this. So if you want to double the value of your donation, uh, please register through our page and make that donation or register now. And we're very excited to uh, to do this this year. So uh, thanks for everybody who's uh, already donated, already joined the page. And if you're a sponsor out there or want to be a sponsor, there are opportunities. So please message me and we'll be happy to fit you in. Uh, if you sponsor us or sponsor, sorry, the Challenge Athlete Foundation before August 2nd, there is still room on the giveaway t-shirt uh, for your logo. So please uh, contact us before then. All right, uh, moving on, let's talk about today's topic, which is wage reconstruction in New Jersey. What is it and how does it work? Well, the New Jersey statute section 37 does allow for wage reconstruction in several limited uh, scenarios. Uh, wage, wage reconstruction, and really what we're talking about in wage reconstruction, is creating sort of a fake wage for people who are not full-time employees uh, to give them the benefit of a full-time wage when you're calculating their average weekly wage, which of course will have a huge impact on benefits. And today I'm going to talk about a case, Calero versus Target, in which wage reconstruction, because it was applied in that case, served to double the value of the award to the claimant. So this can have a huge impact in terms of exposure uh, and employer liability when it comes to uh, a case. So let's just first look at the cases where wage reconstruction is appropriate. And there's lots of case law on wage reconstruction that says a lot of things, but essentially wages can be reconstructed for the purposes of determining the correct permanent partial disability award or permanent disability award. Um, it should not be used in temporary disability uh, scenarios. In fact, temporary disability, it's uh, inappropriate for wages to be reconstructed. So there's case law that says it is appropriate for permanent partial disability awards. There's a two-part test that should be applied in determining whether or not wage reconstruction should take place. The first test is, did the petitioner work fewer than the customary number of days in the ordinary week? And so we're really looking for an employee who works less than five days a week, who works less than 40 hours, or would, would be considered a normal work week. Now, if a person is hired to work 20 hours a week, uh, in general, they should not be getting wage reconstruction. Uh, however, uh, they can if they, in general, are working less than a full-time week, and there's going to be an impact on their future earnings. So they have to have both of those scenarios uh, satisfied. First, working less than a normal work week, and also their future earning ability is going to be impacted. And I'll talk about an example in a second. The best example we have is the example of a part-time employee, hired part-time, only was expected to work 20 hours a week, but who sustains a debilitating injury, which is going to disable them or restrict their ability to do full-time work in the future. When that happens, when the petitioner can show an impact on full-time employment in the future, at that time, the judge can grant them a wage reconstruction. So wage reconstruction can be appropriate in certain cases. How about an employee who is working less than full-time work in that industry, and they sustain some type of injury that's going to impact their future earning? And again, this is the petitioner's burden to show this. Now, there are many circumstances where we can show a full-time, relatively able-bodied person who is working uh, less than the average number of weeks in that, or number of hours, I should say, in that industry. And, uh, but maybe there's no expectation that they're going to work uh, full-time ever. So there are multiple cases involving very similarly situated employees in which the courts have ruled very differently. In the first case that I'm going to talk about is Katsouris. We have a part-time employee who only worked part-time 
And the employer was able to show that there was no impact on their ability to work full-time in some other industry or that industry. And for that reason, wage reconstruction was not granted. Another example is Torres, in which we have a very young employee in that case who sustained a debilitating injury to an extent of their body part, their arm. Uh, in that case, even though they were a minor, they were found to have uh, a huge impact on their ability to earn future earnings. And in that case, Torres, uh, wage reconstruction was deemed appropriate. Now, generally speaking, you should be challenging wage reconstruction where you have a ground to do it. And the reason is because it's going to significantly impact your exposure. And oftentimes the wage reconstruction is not appropriate based on the person's weekly uh, hours worked, or maybe there is actually no impact on their future earnings. So we should always be challenging wage reconstruction in cases that don't fit the model. Other times we should be challenging wage reconstruction in temporary total disability cases. Again, someone who's temporarily disabled, they should not be in general getting uh, a wage reconstructed. Now that's not to say that when someone's working two part-time jobs, that we wouldn't combine the wages from both of those jobs to determine the actual weekly wage. It could be combined because they are now losing time from both of those jobs. But in general, for temporary total disability, wage reconstruction is inappropriate. Now, the maximum rate right now in New Jersey uh, for benefits as of 2020, I'm sorry, 2021 is $969. This is very significant. And if you have an employee who's making nowhere close uh, to the average weekly wage, which would give rise to that maximum rate, uh, be careful when they're trying to reconstruct so they can get back up to that higher um, uh, rate. Now, the second thing I wanna caution people is if the person can do full-time work somewhere else, any other employment, you should be challenging wage reconstruction. Wage reconstruction is not limited by industry. So if the person is working part-time, for example, as a server uh, in a restaurant, and now they're claiming they can't do that server job full-time because of their injury, that's okay, but wage reconstruction is not per industry or per job. If there's some other job they can do sedentary in a full-time capacity, wage reconstruction would be inappropriate in that case. Uh, it is sometimes useful to call upon a labor market expert to prove that this person has some employability or ability to work on a full-time basis in another industry. And that's gonna be difficult to prove. Once the claimant's able to show, hey, I've sustained this injury and I can't work in this current job, if the burden's gonna shift to us to show, yes, you can, and here's some jobs that you could do that would pay you on a full-time basis. All right, this is a live presentation and here's my second reminder to ask questions. I can already see one question's popped up over here, so that's great. Keep asking questions, it makes it a lot more fun for everybody who's watching from home. All right, let's talk about what not to do because sometimes I can, I can preach and say, we'll do this, that, and the other thing, but it's not useful unless I can show you sort of a, an example which demonstrates exactly the opposite of how we wanna defend these cases. Again, our position should be generally, you should challenge wage construction in permanent partial disability cases. So let's look at a case, and I included a copy of this case decision in today's webinar handouts. The case is called Calero versus Target, and it was decided last June. So in this case, uh, we have an employee who worked for Target who was injured in 2016 and settled their case for a 25% permanent partial disability award. At the time of settlement, they were represented by counsel, and they set the average weekly wage of $276 a week. 
that would give rise to a permanent residual disability rate of $193 a week. Remember, that permanent residual disability rate is generally 70% of the average weekly wage set for the claimant, subject, of course, to the maximums and minimums. The person was making $11.50 an hour. Now, they testified during their uh, 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 case uh, that they were earning $11.50 an hour, an average weekly wage was based on about 20 plus hours a week uh, of work, and the case was resolved. At some point, 2018, they get a new attorney, and the new attorney says, wait a second, if this wage was set way too late, too low, you should have been entitled to reconstruction, and so they bring a reconstruction claim. Now they're trying to uh, argue on reopener, because remember in New Jersey, you can reopen a case within two years of the date of last treatment or authorized care, or two years of the date of last payment of compensation. And so this person was already receiving the award. They reopened the case in 2018. And she said, uh, the, the whole point of reopener, again, was the new attorney said, hey, uh, guess what? They set your rate too low, which means your award was too low. You should go into court and argue that even though your disability is only 25%, it is keeping you from being able to do full-time work, and for that reason, we should set your average weekly wage must higher, much higher. Well, here's where things start to go wrong. The defense didn't challenge this, it looks like, in any way. In fact, when you read the case law decision, it consistently says that there were no proofs, uh, there were no witnesses, there was no real argument made. And so the judge of compensation reviewing this allowed reconstruction on reopener and doubled the award, which means the employer was exposed for A, uh, uh, back payment of additional benefits and going forward would be paying this award at a higher rate. It ultimately doubled the amount of the award. Um, the defense on appeal then argued a bunch of defenses, including saying that trial was unfair, we should have been allowed to bring witnesses, etc. The appellate division looked at it and said, wait a second, uh, there's only two things we need to look at. The proofs are, did the petitioner work fewer than the customary number of days from the ordinary week? And was there an impact on future earnings? And the petitioner was able to show that. You didn't present any proofs and argument, and so we're gonna find in favor of the petitioner. So it really shows how you need to present a fact defense when one of these claims for reconstruction is brought forward. You can't sit there and just say, well, uh, no, I'm gonna rest on, on the decision that was made before. Um, also, the defense conceded that the order itself, the settlement order was not final, under rule 4-4-50, which says that a, a judge can reopen an award or settlement uh, to fix it if there's a problem with it. So I don't know why they would have stipulated to that, but that's a second um, uh, sort of result of this decision, which is the appellate division saying essentially, yeah, we can reopen these under section 450, even uh, if uh, we shouldn't open them up as a resolved case uh, on the issue of wage. So this is problematic, and I think it really demonstrates the need to strenuously object and present proofs on a reconstruction case. And in this case, the proofs would have been, uh, my opinion was the claimant's testimony was that generally she worked 20 hours a week, although sometimes when people were out, she would cover for them and she would work up to 40 hours a week. You know, I think that's a strong argument or an opportunity for the employer to bring witnesses in and say, how many hours a week did she generally work? Wasn't it almost always 20 hours a week? Wasn't it rare that she would work more than that? And when she worked more than that, wasn't it because she was covering from other people, not because her job uh, required more than 20 hours a week of work? And I think the employer will be able to argue, I think pretty effectively that, yeah, the, you know, she really uh, was a 20 hour a week worker and that's where the wage should have been set. The second thing the employer should have argued in my opinion is, hey, with such a low percentage of disability, only 25% of permanent partial total, 
really shouldn't be any impact on their ability to earn wages in the future. Uh, very, that's a very minor level of disability, and, and really the employer should have maybe presented a labor market witness or some witness to say, hey, there's nothing keeping them from doing a sedentary job or a job within those permanent restrictions. So this is an example where us as risk professionals should really be pushing back a little bit harder against these claims where the person's alleging that they would be working full time, but for this very minor injury, which is setting them back. All right. Uh, let's talk about another new case, um, and this one I'm just throwing in here because it's interesting to me and because it was just decided on in June. Uh, there's now new case law from the Appellate Division in New Jersey that says that we do not do triennial, triennial redetermination for second injury fund cases. So let me just walk through this decision just very briefly because I think it's an interesting one and it'll uh, be useful for us to understand how the second injury fund works. And just remember, we have a whole webinar that's just on the second injury fund. But uh, in second injury fund cases, remember the state assumes exposure for permanent residual disability going forward after that initial 450 week period uh, or any period where the employer is going to be deemed responsible for some period of permanent disability. New Jersey still has a second injury fund, which then takes over future exposure for people who have had two or more injuries. And remember, those don't have to be work-related. So this is a really important way for employers to get the benefit uh, from the state of New Jersey that they're paying it for. The second injury fund is funded by surcharges on all employers and insurers. And so this is a really useful way to reduce exposure in a permanent total disability case. Now, once the state injury fund, uh, special, special second injury fund, sorry, uh, takes over the case, Remember, they're paying benefits at an offset rate, okay? New Jersey is considered a reverse offset state, which means the uh, wages or the uh, compensation they're getting in the workers' compensation case plus whatever they're receiving from Social Security disability cannot exceed 80% of their average current earnings at the time of the loss. So there's a little bit of a calculation that's done, and this serves to reduce their workers' compensation benefit because that workers' comp benefit is reduced because it is added together with their social security benefit to make sure it doesn't exceed 80% of their average weekly wage. That would otherwise could result in a windfall uh, to a petitioner in which uh, their uh, benefits are going to be exceed the amount of money they earned when they were actually working. So New Jersey is a reverse offset state. Well, the petitioners came forward and said, hey, that's not fair. Uh, every four months, uh, this uh, Social Security is going to keep recalculating what my benefit is based on the idea if I had been working, I would have been getting these cost of living increases, or at least I've been getting raises, or my income would be improving. And I should get to keep the benefit. I should get to keep my additional Social Security money plus my workers' compensation award. And that applies until the petitioner is 62 years old. Uh, the second injury fund said, absolutely, that's not fair. Uh, we should get the benefit of that reimbursement because, again, New Jersey is a reverse offset state. Well, uh, the workers' compensation judge ruled against the redetermination, which again would have resulted in more money moving to the petitioner. And just recently, on June 21st, the appellate division in the case called Willem versus Ryder Logistics agreed with the workers' compensation judge and said, you know, that's not right. Redetermination should not apply and it should not inure uh, uh, to the benefit of the petitioner, it should inure to the benefit of the second injury fund, which is issuing these ongoing payments. So that's an interesting case on a relatively complicated area of law, uh, but one that does serve to reduce our overall exposure in workers' compensation cases, and particularly permanent total disability cases. Our position here is 
once it looks like a case is going for permanent total disability, we are looking for opportunities to get contribution from the second injury fund. I think that should be standard operating procedure or best practice in all of your cases. And so this will serve to reinforce the rule that that 80% average current earnings is the max benefit that the petitioner can receive. And that second injury fund benefit is then going to be reduced accordingly. All right. A little bit complicated, but it might help you in some of your cases as you're sort of analyzing how much exposure there really is. All right, let's move into live question and answer. I'm gonna come over here and open up the question panel, and I hope there's a lot of exciting ones. All right, uh, Susan asked the question, Greg, this is a challenge. What if the judges are the ones driving these issues, even when we challenge reconstruction petitions, especially for retail part-time employees? Yeah, that's been my experience too. You know, oftentimes uh, when we're defending a case, uh, you know, we're happily resolving it. We're paying a temp at this much lower rate because the person was not a full-time employee. And it's at the time that permanency is going to be resolved that either the petitioner's attorney raises the issue of reconstruction or sometimes the judge on their own will say, hey, isn't this a case that's ripe for reconstruction? And generally speaking, judges are going to look at these very low average weekly wage numbers with skepticism. They're going to say, wait, uh, is there truly no 40-hour-a-week worker in this position? Uh, is this person's ability to earn a living going forward going to be impacted by this injury? And so you've got to be ready to argue that, nope, uh, there are defenses to this. The case I just cited to you, uh, Susan, is a retail worker case. Target is a retail uh, company, and, and this person was working, by the way, in a retail position at Target as well. Uh, and so there were defenses that could have been raised and should have been raised and just weren't. And look, maybe you're not going to get what you're hoping for, but at least you're able to compromise uh, or resolve that issue of reconstruction. You know, the petitioner might come forward and say, yeah, most weeks I work 20 hours a week, but there was a couple I worked 40 hours a week. I want reconstruction as a 40-hour a week worker. And at least if you raise your defenses, you can at least negotiate it down to maybe a 30 hour a week worker or something or work on the rate or something like that. Um, you know, I think just not even presenting any defenses is crazy, even in that retail scenario. Uh, Jim asked the question, Greg, I heard the Wilhelm decision is being appealed. Any thoughts on how that might resolve? Well, uh, they have 45 days to appeal that decision. So I don't, I don't know if it has been appealed yet. When I checked this morning uh, and printed that out and added it to this, um, webinar. Uh, there was no note in Westlaw that it's been further appealed. Uh, I would I would be surprised if it wasn't going to be further appealed. And the reason for that is the Wilhelm decision is not just one case that came before. It was a group of cases that all had the same issue, in which petitioners are all seeking this redetermination. And again, it would result in more money moving to the petitioner. So they're very um, you know, motivated to do this. So uh, they still have an opportunity to appeal that as well. Again, the Wilhelm decision is really applying federal law uh, in the context of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. And so, yeah, I think that is grounds for an appeal and there might be an appeal of that. I'll certainly let you know, Jim, if an appeal uh, takes place. But just an interesting decision on a relatively arcane topic that we don't see a lot of case law coming out on. All right, thanks for the questions, everybody. That's all I've got. Thanks, Susan and Jim, for asking those. All right, let's move on. Next week, uh, next month, uh, when we next meet on August 23rd, we're going to be talking about best practices for defending motions for med intent. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of our strategies we use to compromise motions for med intent and try to avoid orders being entered in our cases that take away our medical control of the case. So please join us for that. In the meantime, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, or criticisms, please let me know. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Have a great day, everybody.